I love that you mentioned Mary Oliver because there's a line in one of her poems that is kind of a guiding piece for me. How will you spend your one wild and precious life? Is It's actually a question we're asked to answer with an essay at HBS. And that has always stuck to me, which stuck with me, because that's what we're about. We're, we've got this one wild and precious life. And how are we going to spend it? And I think for me, it's been reframing what success is. I think going to that school pushed me to think about myself and my responsibility in a different way. How are you going to spend your privilege, your time, in a way that does more? Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. December 9th, 2019, started like any normal Monday. The hustle and bustle of the morning routine and the scramble to get my girls ready and off to school had faded away, and I was finishing up a call in my home office with a silent house. I heard a loud thud in the other room, and I knew I was alone, so I went to investigate, and I'll never forget what I saw. My dog, my pup, my companion of 12 years, was in the midst of a severe seizure. I moved over to comfort and pet her, and tears filled my eyes. I knew it was time. I knew I was saying goodbye. Now, Izzy, my dog, had been with me for 12 years. And in that time, I went from what I now see as just a boy in his mid-20s, who had moved to New York City and was lost, and who had just lost his mother, to now a man and a father of three, living in the mountains of Colorado. Izzy was there through so many changes in my life. She was a constant in the middle of a sea of changes. I love that dog. I do love that dog. And I loved my time with her. And losing her was really, really hard. Grief is indeed part of life. It's something that we've all experienced. And it's something that I encounter quite often in my work with clients. And yet it feels like grief is one of those things we constantly hope to avoid or to just rush through. But when we skip and avoid it, we miss out on so much. We miss out on a key part of what it means to be human. Author Francis Weller, in his phenomenal book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, says this on grief. Grief and love are sisters, woven together from the beginning. Their kinship reminds us that there is no love that does not contain loss, and no loss that is not a reminder of the love we carry for what we once held close. The pain and sadness that come with grief, the loss of a dog, the loss of a parent, the ending of a company, They are not there to punish us or to keep us fixated on the past. It's the pain that reminds us of how important those people, those things, were and are in our lives. And what if in the sadness and in being with the sadness lies not only an opportunity to feel the richness of the things that matter most to us, but they present an opportunity for us to see a new way forward as well. For me, in the shared grief of losing our dog... My wife and I found a renewed and deeper love with one another. In a sense, her death brought us even closer together. Avni Patel-Thompson, the founder and CEO of Modern Village, has had her own journey with grief over the last few years. She first connected with Jerry shortly after she decided to shut down her last company, Poppy, who was doing her best to not dwell on the discomfort and the sadness. But when Jerry asked her, 
are you okay? It all came to the surface for her. She joined Jerry in this conversation to talk about the pain and the processing of a loss that comes from ending a startup, particularly one you care so much about, and the ways in which she ran from and avoided the pain, and how the grief itself can reconnect her with a sense of purpose and show her a new path forward. We often talk about the work of rebooting your leadership as individual work you can't do alone. If each member of your leadership team is pursuing the work of self-inquiry and actualization, that's wonderful. But to create the company that you'd all like to work for, you must also create the opportunity for the collective to grow. Experiences like facilitated leadership groups, off-site retreats, organizational change explorations, and immersive leadership trainings move the organization closer to its fullest expression of the inherent values. At Reboot, we're here to support you and your team members in bringing forth the best that you have, using everything that emerges from organizational life, both the challenges and successes, as opportunities to grow. Head to Reboot.io slash team experiences to learn more and more about Reboot's virtual and in-person team offerings. Hey, Avni. Good to see you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, before we get started, can you just take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Avni Patel-Thompson. Um, most recently, I was the founder and CEO of Poppy, a company that helped parents get access to really great childcare when they needed it. And as of the last year, I've been working on the next act and in the process of starting my new company. And, um, but of course, there's more to the story, right? There's always right. more. There's always more. That's right. That's part of the, the, the experience of running into Jerry. So maybe, maybe take a few moments and just, I'd love to hear your perspective on how we met. Because I know that you've written a little bit about that, and I don't know yet if it, if you if you posted the blog post. But anyway, take a moment and uh, share that story. Sure. So, a part of the Poppy journey, I've found the space that we are building in the space of childcare marketplaces. You know, really interesting. The more I've gotten into it, I connected with one of my former professors at HBS, um, Tom Eisenman, and. He was working on a markets class and so connected with him a couple of years ago and they ended up doing a case on Poppy at a point at which we were facing a really interesting kind of, um, you know, choice about expansion, um, expansion in geography versus expansion in products. And so a really kind of interesting case for students to kind of go through. Subsequently, of course, once we made the decision to shut down Poppy, um, Tom actually reached out back out and said, hey, I'm teaching a new course on uh, entrepreneurial failure. Uh, would you like to come? And I think for me, that was an interesting other lens, another way to kind of look at it and, and also bring learning and, and teaching into that. And so I, of course, agreed and went, um, went to that class. Um, but of course, you were speaking the next day at the class. And mm -hmm. I was, um, Tom mentioned that, and I was very excited because I had come across your work, um, obviously, as being a founder in the space. And so I wanted to have the chance to just meet you. Um, really, that was all kind of what it was. I was uh, due to get on a flight, so I couldn't actually stay for the class. And so I asked if I could just uh, 
um, interrupt and say hi during the morning kind of prep session. And Tom said, um, sure. So I popped in and I mean, honestly, um, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting more than just, a you know, an introduction a saying hi and, you know, having those maybe 15 minutes of interaction was deeply, um, I don't know, deeply profound. It, it, it forced me to kind of put down my garden in a way that I don't think I really had, even though I thought I'd been kind of processing a lot of this uh, complex right. emotion. What was it? What happened? You know, I've thought about that a lot in the subsequent weeks. Um, I think part of it is you opened with a very powerful question, which on the surface doesn't feel very, that, you know, all that different. You asked, are you okay? And I've thought about this moment a lot because I've had family, I've had friends, um, you know, they worry and they've asked about my well-being and all that kind of stuff. But being asked that question in that way was, I don't think anybody had ever asked it that way. You know, are you okay? You know, how's it going? You know, how are you doing? Like all of those, you can kind of, you know, I'm good. Things are good. We're getting like, you know, doing all the things. And it's easy to kind of, gloss it over and kind of move on away from the uncomfortableness. And so when you, who I barely had met, kind of asked me with quietness, you know, are you okay? That I, I, I found myself very surprised and almost unable to um, kind of answer because I wasn't sure. I think when mm -hmm. I was, when I tried to answer you, you know, honestly, I think, that's when I didn't necessarily have the answer. And I was, I think I was surprised about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the moment because, and, and, you know, in a way it kind of resurfaced just now as you were introducing yourself, because I made a note when you said it, you were describing some of the backstory to how we met and how you were invited into Tom's class or to return to HBS, if you will. And because um, I imagine you'd gone to HBS and yeah. Tom was one of your teachers. Mm -hmm. And um, and you just very offhandedly said when we decided to shut down Poppy. And um, this, what happened for me that morning when we were sitting in Tom's office ahead of the class happened again just now, which was you said something that I think is really profound. And I'm imagining carries a lot of weight. But you said it in a way that was strong and clear. We decided to shut down Poppy. And so when I asked you, are you okay? It was coming from a place of recognizing that the decision to shut down a business is hard and painful. It's a loss, it's a death. And um, as I know, because we, we subsequently had conversation about this, I know you, you share this belief, we don't talk about it enough. Is that right? I agree. Um, we don't talk about it. I think, well, it's interesting. I think we talk about it at a surface level. I don't think we mm -hmm. talk about what I would call like the collateral damage. I don't think we talk about the trauma. I don't think we talk about what remains. I think we talk about failure and we've somehow put it into, you know, popular 
kind of conversation as a badge of honor, maybe, you know, I've gone through, I, you know, failure, but we do it in a superficial way. And also I will say we do it in a way that we bring up only in the context of success. So it's really great to talk about the Pinterest founders once they've got onto Pinterest, but not really before then did we understand the previous kind of things or Slack or any of these other ones. It's more that once you have that successful outcome, now it's okay to talk about all the failure and all the learning that came um, you know, forth. And that, that kind of narrative is embedded within us. But what I find is there isn't a lot of conversation along the journey in the moment where it's uncertain whether that, like, you know, that next success or that success is going to be in front of us. And I think that's the shame um, just simply because I think there's some number of people that never venture out again because it is so traumatic, because it is so hard and because we don't talk about it. All of that hard fought experience, I think just gets then buried and I'm not saying it's easy, it's, it's terribly painful, but I think my point of view is if we talk about it, if we normalize it, if we understand it as pain, as grief, as mourning, then we can get past it, hopefully, and then get on to that next thing. And we encourage other people to take a, you know, another shot at it. I think this journey, what's been so interesting is that because I've been talking about it and writing about it, the number of people that have come out of the woodworks to say, I've gone through this, I've felt this, but I've never felt a place to kind of that has felt that it's been recognized. And so now here I am working at this big company again, just because I needed, I needed to, you know, lick my wounds and, and um, kind of retrench and that's totally fine. But I think what isn't fine is how people feel alone and almost, um, I don't, I certainly not in any way want to characterize this, you know, akin to um, losing someone um, close to, but for founders, it's something very close. Like this was a living, breathing thing for me for the past four years. And so in some ways that's, that's also hard because it's certainly not anywhere close to like a, a person. But I think the hard part is, is that when you shut something down or when it goes away, it's as if it never happened. Right. People treat it as if it never happened, as if it never had value, as if it wasn't something of value. And that in some ways is almost the most painful part. Like, you know, here speaking one year out from that, it's like it never existed. So I think that's been one thing that I've been, that I've struggled to kind of reconcile in that in, for me, the more I talk about it, the more matter of fact I am about talking about it, then maybe I can normalize it for other people that might feel uncomfortable about talking about it. And then we can talk about all the great parts we did with Poppy, all the things we did well and that were good and that we learned and that we can kind of carry forward. I, I, I think you're making some really important observations. And um, I think there's a bravery in your sharing. And I want to reflect back to you some of the observations that, that I've just been taking note of. One is that um, the notion of the failed startup, we cannot separate out the experience of starting up companies from failure. Absolutely. Because statistically speaking, the vast majority 80, 90% will fail to live beyond two years or so. And so failure is 
a foundational part of that startup journey. And yet, I think your observation that in our attempts to normalize it, in our attempts to socialize it, we inadvertently exacerbate the isolation by really only giving voice to those who have been on the other side of that and have found success. When statistically speaking, the vast majority of entrepreneurs actually will not have a success. Mm -hmm. And we need to let that settle in. Especially if success is defined as having some sort of outsized financial return. That's exactly right. Right. And then, so we want to acknowledge the truth of what you've just said there and give voice and credence to that. But then you added something really powerful and you made an observation that I don't think I've ever made the connection before, which I think is really important to bring out, which is, it's as if we never existed. And that is so painful. You know, in psychological terms, that's annihilation. It's not just death. It's, we didn't even exist. And the memory gets wiped away. Which then undermines any capacity to move forward. Because there is no closure. If it didn't exist, then you can't close it. And this is perhaps a stretch of an analogy, but I think of parents who've lost a child in miscarriage. There's that sense of of the potential, the stillborn potential, and the notion of, of the pain and suffering that comes from those of us around them who lack the words to say anything of comfort. And there was something about my simple question of, are you okay? That somehow, I don't know, gave space to you. Am I hearing that right? Yes, because I think the thing for me is that I'm also, I think founders have to be very pragmatic in the sense that you, in many ways, have to put yourself last. You have to think about everything before, rightly so, I think, your users, your employees, everyone. Um, and then whether it's from the work standpoint or you know, emotional needs or whatever else it is, you have to, it's your job to make sure that everyone has what they need. And then you kind of t- you know, take stock of like what it is that's left. I think it's doubly so in a shutdown. I think, you know, that is so painful for so many people, our users, our employees, like my team, I think that's the hardest part that I had to kind of go through. That's the most heartbreaking. But in, there was always a list of the next thing to do, right? So there was, you know, make sure the users are taken care of, make sure there's a list of all the things that you could possibly do to make that right. Then make sure your team is taken care of, that they land in the right place and that, you know, all the different things. Then make sure that you have to do the litany of things to shut down an actual company. And that goes on for months. And I think in all of that, I think for me, I took solace in the checking of the boxes and saying, I'm giving myself time. I'm doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. But I think what I never, you know, as, as a box was that, you know, am I okay? How am I processing my feelings about this? And I think it's just so painful that 
I think for some time I was like, well, I don't get to do that yet. And so I kind of pushed it. And over time, it just sort of dulls a little bit. Or you'd kind of push it down for a long time and it just kind of stays down there. So kind of seven or eight months after all of that, when you asked me, are you okay? I think what it touched was the fact that I never had gotten around to that to-do. Mm-hmm. And it opened up I, it opened up that I'm not sure, like I, I'm, I'm physically okay, um, you know, all of that stuff. But emotionally, I don't know that I had processed all of the feelings. And during that 15 minute interaction, I think if you'll remember, Tom said, you know, you write a, a lot of things, but you've written about this. And I think that was really telling because I write to process things. Mm-hmm. I write to you know, from the very beginning, I've always written for myself. Um, then in time, I found that in publishing it, that other people could connect to it. And so I found that was that was helpful and enjoyable. And so I did. I've written some about the whole process, but I don't know. I wrote about, you know, the personal journey of like, you know, how it feels and the continued feelings, the continued complexity of that. And so when you ask that question, um, I think it opened it up. And then the interesting thing was then I was on a plane for three or four hours. And so mm. I had nothing but time to write. And so that was a very cathartic day, I would say, to kind of ask that question and then be able to very, very organically, I guess, you know, capture the feelings that were kind of coming out at that point. Mm. So how are you doing now? Better. Um, I think after that conversation, it showed me that I hadn't necessarily done all the work that um, I needed to, to make sure that was right. I think it's still a process. I think it's going to be a process. I don't think it ever goes away, but in being um, aware of it, I think I feel a light, like more of a lightness there. I don't feel like it's kind of shoved down as much. The analogy that I would think about is like, I was almost like, vibrating at like a high frequency inside. I don't know. There's, uh, you know, touches of anxiety when um, I deal with that. It almost feels like if you like one more thing could just snap me. And I think in going through this and dealing with some of these pieces, it's, you know, you, you start to feel a little bit more calmness inside. And that's been really important because I think the most I think the most important thing for me is I don't want to bring undue baggage into the new thing. I think that's the thing I'm most worried about. Mm. It's just like any relationship. You don't want to bring basically the baggage that unduly affects kind of the new, the new thing just simply because you didn't do the work to process Mm. what you're going through. So I think that was, that was the biggest part. I think you're, um, connection and associations make a lot of sense and there's a lot of wisdom in that and it's tough right it's tough to completely process especially if one of our survival tactics has been to move to the checklist in order to move our way through the painful piece and there's a lot of value in those checklists right whether it's uh, the checklist that we draw upon when a loved one passes away I think of being a child of parents who have passed and there's so much processing. There's getting rid of the home and taking care of things. And the same thing that can happen when, um, when we're a founder in the company, the, the, the embodiment of our wishes and dreams Mm -hmm. 
ends. Uh, there's making sure that the state taxes are paid. There's making sure that, uh, you know, the leased equipment goes back to the places, right? Yep. That, you know, there are all these little tasks that in some ways can be comforting because we, 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 they take our energy, but in another way, they, um, they distract from the grieving. And, um, you know, I think you wisely are making the association that um, when, when the feelings are not grieved, when the grieving process is itself interrupted and incomplete, the danger is that we will then carry forward into the next relationship, into the, you know, we, we carry forward the unprocessed stuff from our parents into our relationship with our children. We carry forward the unprocessed grief from the loss of our company into the next experience, whether it's a new company or whether it's a new mm -hmm. job. And so you're in that place where you're thinking about have you actually launched the next business? I think if I remember yep. correctly, you have, what is that next business? So it's still in the space, similar space. So it's called the modern village and it's still on that same mission. I, I think the ultimate thing I'm away with this is that more recent yen. Um, the thing that we set out to do with Poppy is still just as important, just as relevant. Um, and just because that attempt didn't work, doesn't mean that it's still not worthy of working on and trying something else. And so I think for me, I take what I learned from that first and try to figure out how to kind of go at it again. And so there's a lot of connections. And I think in some ways, what's been comforting is that I get to honor, I, I, let, I, I get to let Poppy live on in some ways because I get to think about it in a way that it's a continuation of the mission and it's not a cleaving. I love that image of it being a continuation of the mission. Um, I'll relate it back to my own life. I take such comfort and meaning from the notion of my relationship with the work, capital T, capital W, and that my relationship to the work exists beyond any particular manifestation. So one manifestation is reboot the company. Mm -hmm. Another manifestation is reboot the book. Another manifestation is this podcast. Another manifestation is the coaching relationships that I have with clients. They're all part of a continuum of a relationship to the work. And people will often ask me, um, well, what will you do when you retire? And I cannot conceive of not doing the work, right? but I can conceive of doing the work differently. Does that, does that resonate with you? It resonates deeply. I think, I think at some point I had to make the choice where I'm embarking on this journey to do this work that is deeply, deeply important to me. I don't know how financially um, you know, lucrative it is, um, and I think that's not the point for me. I think I've picked a space that, you know, touches me to, to a level that I do feel it's like my calling to work on this space. And that now in having spent four or five years in it, I'm in a unique position to be able to work on it. And so 
if the work means writing, if the work means building software, if the work means advocating for, you know, working women and mothers, you know, that for me, it, it's again, it's fluidity, it's a spectrum. That's not the point. It can look like a lot of different things. But for me, what I hold at the highest kind of level is the mission. What's the point? And for me, the point is I've found purpose in working mothers, working parents, and just kind of trying to dig into what is it that can make their lives easier, that helps families, helps communities. I think, you know, while I've been reading your book, there's touches of that, which is like what in your childhood <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of makes you want to do these things into your adulthood and beyond. Um, I think that's where um, it's also been kind of uh, comforting understanding and making those connections because it isn't just happenstance. I think for me, there was a little bit of like, that's a little bit random that you're working on childcare after a whole uh, career basically in retail and consumer goods. I don't see it that way anymore. I think it was almost this inevitability that other things were leading me to this place and that I was always meant to be doing this work. The other, the other work was just simply helping me build to this place. And so that's been really, I think that's also comforting because I think um, North America, we have this tendency to be very focused on not just the short term, but in general, just it's about our lives and about our lifespans. You go to Asia, you go to Europe, and there's this very overarching feeling that, you know, we've been here before you, we will be here after you. And it's about generations. And it's about, you know, what is your impact for the time that you're here? And I love that. And part of the healing journey for me has been traveling, frankly, mm -hmm. getting myself out of this kind of, um, you know, place and mind state. But it's this idea that it is a continuum that Poppy was just this little small piece of it, an important piece, just as every other chapter has been. But it's a continuational journey on the path of, you know, this overall. Um, and so that the way that you think about your work is very much how um, I think about mine. Yeah, and, and, and I can feel it. And one of the things that occurs to me as, as we're talking is I, I think of writers that I admire, right? Um, I, uh, he's been a guest on the show, and, and many people know that I consider him a deep and profound teacher. But I think about Parker Palmer's books. And in one way or another, each book, while different, is an exploration of the same questions. Who are we meant to be? How are we to be in the world? I think of the poetry of Mary Oliver, for example. And Mary Oliver is very much telling the same stories again and again. Or, the, or, 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 or great works of art are, in a sense, telling the same story. They're, they're exploring the same question, which then... And so when I think about that and I think about my own life, I think that my relationship to work, when, 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 when the work I choose to do is a manifestation of that continuum. And I love to have the context in which you added, in which that continuum is, in fact, continues long. It stretches from long before I was born to long after this meat bag is exhausted and leaves this earth all of a sudden it puts failure into a different light, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it, it's, it's funny because it shouldn't, but it gives me peace. Like it gives me, 
I don't know, somehow I can breathe a little bit easier knowing that my part is just simply a small part. That it isn't, I don't have to worry about the whole sum. I just have to do my bit. And if this bit doesn't work, I can come at it again. And that it's not going to um, stop me. I love that you mentioned Mary Oliver because um, there's a line in one of her poems that is kind of a guiding piece for me. But And I'm going to you know, butcher it horribly. But it's, you know, how will you spend your one wild and precious life? And that is, it's actually a question we're asked to answer with an essay during, um, at HBS. And that has always stuck to me, which stuck with me, because that's what we're about. We're, we've got this one wild and precious life. And how are we going to spend it? And I think for me, it's been reframing what success is. I mean, honestly, I, I think that's, you know, something that we maybe is trite and we talk about a lot. And maybe ironic coming from places of going to like, you know, Harvard Business School and things like that. But I think on the contrary, I think going to that school pushed me to think about myself and my responsibility in a different way. And how are you going to spend your privilege, your time in a way that does more? And I think that's the question I'm always chasing. But if I think about it in a continuum, then I'm not so frantic about it. One of my... Um, when right after I announced about Poppy, a fellow founder who's a dear friend in Seattle, he sent me, um, he just asked me for my um, address and he's like, I just need to send you something. And so I gave it to him. And a couple of weeks later, uh, got this beautifully framed quote that actually sits right in front of me in my office. And it's a Thomas Edison quote. And it says, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't, that won't work. And I have that right in my, um, line of sight, because that's exactly right. That's exactly what we're about. And especially as founders, that's what our work is. That's what we were put on, you know, I think on the earth to do is, is it's for us to try. And when we try, we're going to fail. And we need to understand what that failure looks like and feels like, but that's all part of this continuum. And it's all part of the journey. Can, can I expand upon that? When we take a take a step back and we look at the work that is ours to do within the, this larger context. In your case, and I really want to explore this in a moment, in your case, it's this, this the experience of working parents. What does that mean? When we see that, um, and I know what Thomas Edison is doing, he's reframing the notion of success and failure and elevating the notion of trying but i'm going to go beyond that a little bit and say that there is no success or failure because as long as you are committed to how are you doing your work then there is i'm doing my work um, a lot right now or a little right now but it's not the same as succeeding or failing you know, it, it, one of the things that comes to mind is something uh, a dear friend and one of the reboot coaches, Ray Foote, once said to me, uh, as I wrote about in the book, I've had um, challenges. Uh, I, have, I have the early uh, stages of heart disease. And uh, the diagnosis came to the front, came to the fore uh, while I was writing the book. And it just means that, you know, uh, I have to be very conscientious about uh, diet and exercise. And uh, that's just where I am genetically. 
And uh, recently over the summer, there was some more concern about that. And so Ray and I went for a walk and he shared with me something a, a doctor friend of his once said to him, which was, how will you spend your minutes? And I think that if we are spending our minutes doing our work, there is no success or failure. I think that's, that's so right. I think that's exactly how I see it. I think, I think it's hard when we think about there are um, kind of financial pressures, right? So there, there are aspects of there that we do need to think about. And I think has been um, a pressure point for me, certainly for our family for these years as I've done this. And that's been a, a deep source of conflict, I will say. But setting that aside, that's exactly how I think about it. I think about it if I, you know, God forbid, was hit by a bus tomorrow. What would people have said? Not that that's what I'm holding the measure to, but, you know, for on one part, I know that I spent my days doing the work that I otherwise just have always wanted to do and been meant to do. But separate to that, I think people would say she's someone that well, I would hope they'd say she's someone that just kind of lived life full out, right? You know, she did the work that she felt was important to work on, probably at the cost of, you know, financial or some of those other kind of material um, aspects of it. But I think that's what's important to me and what has, especially over this last year where I do have the choices to go on in this path, um, to choose a different path. And I might still choose a different path in the future. I think that's the other part of this is that no choice is, is you know, um, complete or um, irrevocable. And so I think that speaks to me because as long as we're doing the work, that is enough. And I think that also speaks to me because I think of this like almost like as an academic, if you will. Um, I come from the sciences, actually. My undergrads in chemistry for the first part of my, um, for all of my academic life, and then even the early years, I always thought about this as an academic. I always thought I was going to go into medicine or research or something like that. And so even the way I ran Poppy and I run my companies is like a scientist. I make hypotheses. I, we test them. We look for data. If they you know, hold true, then great. And if they don't, then we revise and we move on. It also helps to give important objectivity when you're running a company and you're trying to figure out, like you're so high in the subject matter, but you're trying to figure out, do we have something, do we not? But I think that's important because when we shut down Poppy, again, I don't see it through the lens of failure. I see it through the lens of like academia and, and advancing knowledge. Did we learn things? We did. And did the ultimate hypothesis, you know, prove out the way that we thought? No, but that is not failure. But science also does not speak in terms of failure or success. Um, they, they speak in terms of, you know, was the hypothesis proven or disproven, right? And I think that's also part of the reason why I've been able to process all this is really just because I come from a world where uh, pushing the bounds of knowledge is what's the point. And then taking those, that new knowledge, sharing it to everyone that you could possibly can, like, you know, to the broader academic community, so that it might not be you that makes that final kind of aha conclusion, but you had your piece in it. That's something that I think we could use a lot more of in the entrepreneurial space, frankly, especially in spaces like childcare, in spaces that are going to touch policy, public good, and things like that, where I had a go at it. I learned a lot of things. Here they are. And so if you want to take a go, awesome. 
don't go and learn these things again. Um, go, you know, build on that. Those are pieces that I think about because I don't, I think that's exactly right. We need to stop framing it with these words called success and failure. And we need to use, especially in the space of um, startups, uh, different nomenclature if we're going to kind of move beyond it. I, I really admire the way you're, you're applying the scientific inquiry process to this process. I think it, that's it as applicable as the artist process that I was describing before. They're both very, very similar. Mary Oliver may not have liked every poem that she wrote to the same degree, but they were each iterations and built upon. And so that became a body of work over a life. And I think that that's one of the ways in which you are processing, if you will, the quote unquote failure of Poppy, right? And creating the space for the new to be born. What I'm also hearing though is, is an additional source of resilience, an additional source of capacity that I wanna to bring to your attention and reflect back to you that I think you're experiencing. And that reminds me of Viktor Frankl and his work in logotherapy. Viktor Frankl was a very, very interesting man. He wrote his, his famous book is Man's Search for Meaning. And he survived the Holocaust. He survived concentration camps. And he set about asking, trying to answer a simple but profound question. Why did some folks survive and others die? And not just because of the whims of cruel prison guards, but some folks were able to withstand and some folks weren't. And what he concluded was that those folks who were able to stay connected to meaning and purpose had a better capacity to withstand. And I would argue that you're, there's a, there's a, a profound degree of self-awareness that I see in you that connects back to purpose and meaning. And um, what I've witnessed you doing, even in this conversation, even in the brief interactions that we've had over the, our short but profound relationship, is your ability to touch back into that purpose and meaning, not merely as a, 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 a salve to heal the wound, but as a resource to move forward. The work is part of a larger legacy. The work is part of a larger continuum. And for you, there's something in this experience of providing, well, how would you describe it? Providing something, resources to working parents. What is that for you? I don't, it, it's, it's something that touches on so many different levels for me. I mean, I, at a kind of cerebral and academic level, there's, I think obviously the roots are in my experience becoming a parent, right? And um, becoming a parent and not, you know, being surrounded by friends, but still feeling that isolation, that loneliness, that bewilderment, that it wasn't, you know, that a lot, so many people, too many people kind of feel in this kind of modern day and age. And I think for me, I think the part for me is that inefficiency or things that happen because they don't, but they don't need to happen that way. I think for me, there's some injustice in that for me that I always want to try to write because 
I'm, I'm fully aware that some parts of life, like that's just kind of how it is, right? Like that's just the human experience. This is one that is almost the contrary, that this is not the human experience. It is not the human experience to parent alone, to parent in isolation, to raise the next generation, um, you know, with one, maybe two, if you're lucky people. It's, I say burden just simply in the, you know, measure of weight, not in kind of a value judgment of, of being bad. That burden can be, you know, can be kind of carried by a number of different people. And that is not happening today um, for a number of different reasons. But I know both living it in both ways, both having my village and like, you know, a, a broad set of people and how liberating it is. For me to do the work that I do today, it, uh, it's so trite, but it does take my parents, our incredible nanny who is now family, a very active and participant husband. And like, it takes all of these people. And so for me, part of this work has become how do we not prescribe how this should happen with any family, but how do we give everyone the options, the, the safety net, the resources that they deserve and kind of need. And so that's where all of this has kind of come together for me. But it's also in the sense that if that's too big for me and my company to kind of tackle, then let's also share this knowledge and, and collaboratively, you know, build that with other folks. I think that's what's also Im important because when you're talking about heavy things like childcare and uh, education and community and all these different things, I mean, gosh, that's like, that's a lot of things. And so I don't want to be unrealistic in saying we are going to solve all of this. That's not the point. The point is I want to raise up these issues as a space to be solved for equally as fintech and Bitcoin and, you know, and, and all of these other pieces that people have a lot of interest in. I want to shed light on how interesting and how valuable and important it is for us to be also putting our best minds into this space, very human problems. So, yeah, I think it, there's, there's just so much in there that I want to bring to the next generation of parents so that, you know, hopefully they never have to have those experiences that we've been navigating. So what I'm hearing in, in, in that uh, is the value, the belief is in community. It's in the shared experience of we're in this together. It's in the village, it's in, it's take, it takes a village, but the medium the specific work to be done has to do with parenting and childcare. Whereas the, the work to be done could be in caring for aging parents or the work to be done could be in healthcare or, but, but there's a, there's even a broader stretch towards, which I, I now find really gorgeous to be able to say the, the scientist in you, reaching for the humanist in you and bridging a gap between those two, bridging, bridging those two worlds, which I think our society tends to falsely asunder and make uh, into this, this construct of left brain, right brain, Absolutely. When, when the wholeness of us mm -hmm. involves bringing together all of that. And, and, you know, if, if we were, if we had a coach client relationship, I might encourage that part of you to be even more fully pronounced 
as you go forward with business planning, as you go forward with building the team, as you go forward with fundraising, as you go forward, is to bring that not only to light to help with your grieving process, but to take that part which is helping you with the pain of Poppy and elevate that part to uh, a, a, a kind of beacon for what is the purpose of this business so that uh, others, investors, employees, future employees, clients, customers can rally to that beacon. I love that. I think that 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 would be an expression of taking the pain that you experienced, the wounding, and making it sacred, and and to to lead and build a company from a sacred wound place is a uh, is a real honor and privilege. I love that. What do you hope to happen for the, tell me again the name of the new company? Modern Village. What do you hope Modern Village will look like? How, how will it be? I think that's the interesting part of being back at the beginning where there's so many different, there's so much potential. I think mm-hmm. the analogies to children are kind of, and, and um, startups are sort of um, inevitable to kind of make, but there's so much potential. There's so many directions this could go. But the parts that I can absolutely see are the ones that we've been talking about. It's community. It's empowerment. I want people, I want parents to feel in control. There's too many people that I've talked to where this, I don't know, all the words kind of feel trite, but this profound experience, this responsibility of raising these little humans into their own little kind of lives you know, there's, there's so much that's um, wonderful about it, but there's so much that w- gets covered in the checklist. You know, you're so, you're just running after the checklist every single week. The number of people that I talk to that say, I never get to stop and catch my breath and saying like, are we doing the things that we feel are like the right things? The things that are amounting to the family that we want to raise, the values, all that stuff. And I think for me, what I want this to be is that if we took care of, I almost see it like Maslow's hierarchy, um, mm-hmm. you know, speaking again from like bringing in other um, kind of constructs and frameworks. But when you're so worried about the bottom parts, you know, the, the pieces, you can never get to the higher attainment kind of pieces of it. Well, I kind of think about that in parenting. We're so focused on, you know, what's happening this week, who's going to which class, what's pickups, what's for dinner, all of those pieces that we're never really able to focus on why have the relationship I I want with my partner. Are we raising our kids with the traditions, the values? Um, Are, you know, are we doing the things that are kind of that higher level? So my hope is that there certainly is a community piece, but there certainly is that it's, it's so funny that you say that, but it is absolutely that science and art dichotomy, that right and left dichotomy. I see technology living in service of people, making people's lives more efficient and better so that they can go off into the real world and live uh, you know, a, a better, more full life and use their time however they want to. So ultimately what I wanna do is give parents back time. If we can take off your plate you know, all of those hours spent on logistics and all the inefficient parts. And then we can give you back time. So whether that's time reinvested in your work, in your 
relationships and your kids, that doesn't matter. That's up to you. But I see how do we bring together community and how do we bring together technology to be able to unlock that? And that's the how is not entirely clear to me, but I know that there's something there. And so while I can see that, um, there's work to be done. May I respond from a place is almost like your older brother. Absolutely. <laughs> As a parent of humans who are now in their 20s, um, and my oldest will turn 30 in about six months. What occurs to me is that uh, the gift that you're trying to give to parents is to make it easier for them to ask of their children, are you okay? And just like that question had a profound impact for you, when a parent is able to quiet their anxieties and quiet the checklist and to be able to look into their child and say, are you okay? They're giving them a gift of being seen, which maybe is, you know, the most profound gift that we can give our children. We think that the most important thing to do is to make sure that the lunch is well packed and that it's really nutritious. And did, did I put the baby carrots in the lunchbox or not? When what we really need is to give them the space to be human so that they experience being seen and fully accepted for who they are. That's beautiful. Yeah, I hadn't seen it, I hadn't connected it, but that's exactly it. You know, just like it moves you, it would move them. I am so thrilled for your journey. I know it's, uh, it's been a process and uh, I'm really moved by your awareness and um, and I have no doubt in your ability to process all of this. And I don't know if Modern Village will be the financial success you deserve. I don't know. But I think that you're moving the needle along in, right the, in, in, in the right ways it needs to be. And you're spending your minutes doing the work. And that's a gift you're giving your children as well. Thank you. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight.
At Reboot, we often talk about the value of relationships in mirroring back to us our blind spots. Now, all honest feedback is valuable, and it's great if your culture supports a constant flow of feedback. But it's often helpful for leaders to take deeper dives into radical self-inquiry, giving themselves focused and intentional space to examine the patterns of behavior that are either serving them or not serving their teams and their missions. 360 reviews are a really powerful tool that can help leaders make course corrections, supporting both individual growth and the growth of the company. While there are many approaches to 360s out there, what we have found to be the most helpful to our clients is to approach the 360s as an extension of the coaching conversation. Most leaders don't care how they rate numerically on a list of abstract capacities. And even if they do, it's tough for them to really know how to make use of that kind of data. But if they can hear through the voices of their colleagues how their behavior is making impact, and if they can be helped by a coach to see more clearly the choices available to them for change, the benefits can be immense. If you'd like to learn more about Reboot 360s, you can go to reboot.io slash 360.